morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I hope you're you're ready to study God's Word and you've got a couple things in your hand. One is an info guide. We'll talk more about that later. The other is the sermon notes. You should have a back and a front on it. As we are back in Genesis, took a week break last week just to look at our responsibility to our children from both the church and as parents. And he, now we're back in Genesis 22. So let's sort of refresh ourselves on, uh, yeah, uh, of where we've been and where we've come and what's going on in the story. As many of you are very familiar with Genesis 22, as Abraham and Isaac and the story that begins with God testing Abraham. And so we're, we're coming off of, if we were peering into the life of, of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, and remember they, they've came a long way. It started from an idol-worshiping pagan, chosen by God, called him to himself, set him on a journey, made him a promise through your son, through a son that comes from you and Sarah, no one else. took him a while to get that. <laughs> made a lot of mistakes along the way. But year after year, as this man got older and older and older, they waited and waited and waited and waited for a son. We saw the week before last, now the son is here. And so imagine you've got a little toddler running around and you're 100 years old. <laughs> That's been their life for a good many years as we've came into the story. You know, they've raised the lies, the son of promise. Life is good. The tension has been relieved. They've settled into life. And now we come to this point in the story, this simple narrative, but yet it's almost impossible to imagine, especially as a parent, this simple narrative of a command, of obedience, and then of provision. And because we watch a lot of TV and there's been some movies done about Abraham. We tend to focus on him, of his faith, and we will talk about that today, and it's important. But God's Word never writes something that's meant for us to center and to focus on a man, to elevate him. It's meant to elevate God and to direct our praise. He is the object this morning. That's the test is incredibly hard as we look at Abraham, this hard command, but the way that, the only way I could orient myself is to say, okay, if I was an Israelite, or if I was a Jew and I was reading this for the first time, which one, Abraham or Isaac, would I most identify with? Would it be Abraham or would it be Isaac? Remember, they were the ones that were the promised they exist because this promise was carried through. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down the line. And so I submit to you that the original people that were reading this for the first time, they're, they're in this narrative, their eyes are locked on one person, and his name's Isaac. They're, they're concerned. Why are they concerned? Would he live or would he die? That's important. Why? Because they don't exist if he dies. They don't exist. So if you ask them, read through this narrative and say, what's the point? 
they would clearly say, the ram died so Israel might live. Because that's what we want to focus on this morning. And it begins with a test. God tested Abraham. Seemingly out of nowhere, as we look at Genesis 22, look with us at verse 1. We're just going to go through the narrative this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, when he, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. And so we say, God did what? If you've grown up like me in the King James, it doesn't help you any because the King James says that God did this in order to tempt him. I could really mess this up. So we need to gain clarity. What's going on here? What's the purpose of the test? What is it not? James helps us with that. So flip, me, flip over with me to James. James 1, verse 13. James 1, 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is not happening here is God tempting Abraham to sin. But God is testing him. So why is he testing him? And, and I know when we see these kinds of stories, we always come up with that word in our mind. This don't seem fair. We say that a lot. Is this fair? Why did he test him? Listen to this quote. The greatest test in the life of Abraham came after he had finally received the promise. He was to give his son back to God through sacrifice. It's one thing to trust the Lord while waiting for the promise, but it was quite another thing to continue to trust the word of the Lord when it called for the patriarch to do something which seemed unreasonable. Can't we be honest? This seemed unreasonable. It seemed illogical. So the test then, would Abraham cling to the promised child? The child for which the, his whole future and the future of his people determined by that boy, would he cling to him or would he obey? The test was designed to see to the extent that Abraham would obey. But it's an important lesson for us to learn as God's covenant people. Listen. Listen. He tests his people. He does. God does not change. The Lord deals with his people here. He tests them. So what does that mean exactly? It, this word here, to test, means to determine the quality. This is a quality test. <laughs> the quality of his faithfulness. That was why he was testing. You see, it's, it's possible, it's even probable for us to make what God provides the object of our faith, not God. And we can deceive ourselves very easily. It is not simply possible. Listen, it is probable that what God provides us, we will center our focus, our affections, our time, our, our monies on it and not God. So this is the test. Make no mistake, this was a command. In verse 2, we see very clearly God says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. You see the clear imperative. Take 
go offer. He was being very clear. Not only was he being clear, God made sure that he understood the thing, what he was saying. He understood. And so he focused in. Do you see it? Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God understood the excruciating nature of this test. He knew what he was doing. And, and make no mistake, Abraham understood what happened to a burnt offering. A burnt offering was to be totally consumed. And just think about this. His whole focus of the sun determining the future just went up in smoke. As God said, offer him up to me. Give him back, Abraham. So not only did he tell him what he wanted to do, he told him where he wanted him to go. Look at that. It says, take him to the land of Moriah. It even says, and this is important, I'll show you which mountain. Go to the land of Moriah. I'll show you the mountain. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. This is awesome. If you don't believe in a God of providence, you got the wrong God. God's a God of providence. God's in the details. He doesn't just determine the beginnings and the ends. He determines that in the middle. Look at our Bibles here this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Look with me at verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So we see it was on Mount Moriah, this place that God's telling Abraham to go offer Isaac of where the temple was built. And how did that get there? You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. 2 Samuel 24, verse 16. David had this wise idea, and I say that sarcastically, to do a census. Look at us. Look how many people we got. Look how much, many guys I have. So he counts his people. His heart was convicted, and God judges him. He gets three choices. And God's sovereign judging wrath came over the people and killed 70,000 people, and it stops on the threshing floor of Ornon. God told David, offer, build an altar right there. That was the place that Abraham was told to take Isaac. That was the place where the temple was saying, and this is the same area that Jesus will then stand and be convicted. So the test, the question, am I willing to sacrifice the most dearest, the most precious, even if I consider it a gift from God? There is no more practical question in the life of a Christian. God always requires that which is Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus clearly says to us, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And so, sacrifice is always a part of the life of God's people. Abraham, do you fear me? It's a question. Do you fear me? And Abraham responds. How does he respond? Faith and obedience. So 
overwhelming. Look at his response back in Genesis 22, verse 3. And listen, I know when we get to this response, you've got to pull those movies that we've watched out of your head. You know, to where God tells him to do that, and he beats his hand on the ground. And We don't have any of this in the narrative. We simply say, God says, go, offer him. What do we see? So Abraham, verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place that God had told him. He simply gets up instantly, unquestionably, in obedience and begins to make the provisions for a journey. Thomas Watson says, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So did Abraham as he prepares this journey. This is very simple, clear narrative. What the narrator does is he speeds up in some of these narratives and he slows down. He speeds up and he slows down. When he slows down, he gives us more details. He's wanting us to slow down with him and understand. He's wanting us to see that Abraham cuts the wood that he will offer his son on. He knows what's required of a burnt offering sacrifice. God has already told him who the lamb was to be. So he makes provisions. And then he travels, look at verse 4, for three days. A lot we could say about these three days. But listen, this was not an emotional reaction. He wasn't acting emotionally. This was sustained obedience. As for three days he traveled to the place that the Lord says, Go to the land of Moriah. I'll show you where to go. So he travels. Well, Abraham clearly, on his journey, he had a mission. And his mission, look at verse, four, verse 5. He's going to go and worship the Lord. On arriving there, he said, Then said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to again to you. See what he says. We're going to go worship. And we're going to return. So what's going on in his mind? God's already told him what he's, what he's supposed to do. What's he thinking about? Don't you wish sometimes the Bible would give us some more details in certain areas of Scripture? <laughs> but here's what we do know. Abraham knew two things. God had planned the future around this son Isaac. He knew it. No question, that was in his mind. Why? Because God had said so. Bounded into a blood covenant. God made an oath and cannot change. What else did he know? God's told me to sacrifice him. He knew these two things. Turn with me. Praise the Lord for Hebrews. The more you know your, your Old Testament, the more you will grow to love Hebrews. Hebrews 11, it's in wrong in your notes. It says Hebrews 11. 9, it should have said 19. Hebrews 11, let's go, go to 17. Let's forget the whole thing. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, 
Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Look at verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This was what was in his mind. You see, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. As we've been told through our brothers in the past, it's true. This, what he thought about God was driving what he was doing right now. That was, what, that was the object of his faith. That's what they want. That's what Abraham, that's what Moses wants us to focus on this morning. Not Abraham. But what was the object of Abraham's faith? He said, well, God's made a promise through this son particular, and God's told me to offer him up. What's the only option? Going to raise him up. Look at this quote. In the final analysis, Isaac would be brought twice from the dead, once from the Sarah's dead womb and once again from the house. He said, well, he woke up. He woke her womb up. It was dead. Remember? Dead. Couldn't have children. God brought her womb and everything that went along with that to raise a child to life. Abraham had no doubts in his God, and so Abraham and Isaac ascended the mountain together, verse 6, back in Genesis 22. It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went up together. And so how old was Isaac? He was old enough to carry the load of wood. <laughs> he carried it. I thought, too, one little hint of he wasn't a little bitty boy was. He didn't ask 60,000 questions. Ever had a little one ask him, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about that? You know. But he, he gets him, it, it gets the best of him on the way up the mountain. Verse 7 and 8 said, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? He said, Here I am. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? In verse 8, the very heart of the message for God's people this morning. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide for himself. So this is not just the turning point, but the very heart of the narrative for God's people Israel. God sees, God provides. Their whole existence hung in the balance at this point. Verse 9 and 10. Well, but when they had came to the place, and notice, this is the point in the narrative where it slows back down. The narrative slows down again. They came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. You see, he's telling you, Abraham got there, built that altar one rock at a time. Put the wood, notice it gives you that detail, in order. Listen to this quote. There he stood, the old man with his only hope. But he did not doubt. He did not look anxiously to the right or to the left. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. He knew that it was God Almighty who was trying him. He knew that the hardest sacrifice that, that God had given him, the hardest sacrifice that could be required of him. 
but he knew that no sacrifice was too hard for God when God required it, and so he drew his knife. Listen to this. It's on the screen. We need to ask ourselves, which, which way are we inclined to this morning to look at this text? Because make no mistake, in Abraham and Isaac, in this moment in history, and in all the original readers that were reading this on their tiptoes, this was the point of no return. The same God who sets the test in sovereignty is the one who resolved the test in graciousness. In a world beset by humanism, scientism, and naturalism, the claim that God alone provides is as scandalous as the claim that he tests. Faithful people will be tempted to want only half of it. Most complacent religion will want a God who provides, not a God who tests. Some in bitterness will want a God who tests, but refuse the generous providing. Some in cynical modernity will regard both affirmations as silly, presuming we must answer to none and rely upon none, for we are both free and competent. Listen to the message this morning. But Father Abraham confessed himself not free of the testing and not confident for his own provision. This is the lesson. I am not above being tested by my sovereign God. And I am completely dependent on God to provide. And so Abraham in faithful obedience draws his knife, raises it up to his only son, and God provides. God provides a ram. Verse 11 and 12, But the angel of the Lord called to him and from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on your boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This, this, this was God speaking, this divine intervention Isaac was only one knife blow from the whole people of Israel not existing. You see, in the mind of Abraham, he had already sacrificed his son. He had already. He was already sacrificed. He had already resolved, just like Hebrews, God said this, God's done this, he's going to have to do this, I'm just going to obey him. I trust him. And so in verse 12, God says, now I know. What did God know? He knew that Abraham feared God. How did he know it? Because he didn't withhold that which is the most precious to him. You see this? <laughs> it's not just a test in his life this morning. This is a test in the life of believers. It, do we fear God? How do we know we fear God? Because we don't withhold that which is most precious to him. God always requires what's precious. And so the fear of God then is, is one of these lessons that God is teaching his people. We see it in Exodus 20, verse 18, as God gives the Ten Commandments to his people around the mountain. Verse 18, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashings of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that, you fear, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
people stood afar off. So the heart of true worship, a heart of true service, is always the fear of God. This is the issue of submission. It's submission to the Word of God. It's submission to the mission, regardless of what it costs. Regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what it costs my children, He is who He is. He is worth it all. And if God says, pay it, we pay it, because He is the most precious. This is the test. Years later, God would lay his only son on the altar, raise his knife, and there was no one to stay with. So I hope you've noticed this intentional language of God. You have not withheld your son, your only son. John 3.16 reminds us of this when it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. You see, God provides for His people. He provided for them with what? A substitute. Verse 13 and 14, back in Genesis 22. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, him... Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering, listen, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. So we see this original audience is now they, they see it. They see the substitute, a ram caught by his horns. You see, an offering had to be without blemish. He was caught in his horns. Takes the ram, takes his son off, unbinds him, puts the ram on there. See, there was going to be an offering for sin. There must be an offering for sin. But God provided a substitute. So verse 14, verse 14 says, So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain the Lord shall be provided. So it not only means the Lord provides, it means the Lord sees. In other words, do you believe this this morning? The Lord sees his people and he provides for his people. This is faith. God's provided a substitute. What was going on in the mind of God's people when they read this? Whatever point in history they found themselves in, they would have remembered 400 years in Egypt, especially. 400 years. And do you remember? God brought judgment. He brought the plagues on Egypt. Do you remember them? you remember the last one? He's instructed His people... Take an animal, bring him into your home, kill him, make him a sacrifice, take his blood, put him over the doorpost. In Exodus 12, 12 to 13, they give clear understanding. When the judgment of God comes on people, he will pass over you because there was a substitute for you. This caused the passing over. They would have remembered that. 
They would have connected that. They would have remembered Leviticus 1, the Levitical system. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him in the tent of Ming, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting and that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. God's people would have remembered there must be a blood sacrifice. There must be a blood atonement for our sins or we are not right with God. And so they would have remembered that there was a prophet named Isaiah that spoke of a final substitute that was coming. Micah read it for us. Let's remind ourselves again, Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 4, speaking of our Savior, says, Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of we, like sheep, are gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was on the temple mount that Jesus was sentenced to death to be our substitute is the picture. It is all through the Gospels, all through the Old Testament. There was a substitute coming. And so as the substitute lay there being consumed by the fire, God speaks again. And God reaffirms His covenant, His promises, and His blessings. Verse 15, Genesis 22 said, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By, my sw- by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. Listen. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And your offspring shall have, and in, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so we see, as we have already read before, God reaffirms his covenant, and he swears. And since there is no one else to swear, he swears by his own name. This time he brings even more clarity to the promise when he says, you will possess the gates of your enemies, or in other words, you will dispossess the Canaanites. No, you're not only going to, you're not going to build cities from scratch. These are my cities, this is my land, and I have given it to you. You're going to move into their house. This was the promise. And imagine this. Imagine this moment. The offering is laying there. It's being consumed. God has just reaffirmed His promises and His blessings to you. What was going on in there? How do you think that would have affected their worship? How do you think that would have affected their joy in their everyday life? How do you think that would have affected Isaac's boldness in his God? 
did Abraham really get this? Did he really know what was, where this was headed? What was coming? This is what Jesus said in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 56. It says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So he, Abraham saw the day that Jesus would come. He says he saw it and he was glad. Here's what I want you to do this morning. We've been singing it. Put yourself in Isaac's shoes. His sandals, so to speak. As he stands there on the altar that he was just on. The ram's being consumed. And he said, that could have been me. That could have been me. Here's what I hope he said. That should have been me. Listen, man. Some of us cannot rejoice in the finished work of the bloody cross because we have bought into this lie of our day that says it's not fair. And we spend our lives thinking that we somehow are entitled to something other than the wrath of God. We are not. And until we see that, until we fall on our knees and say, why would God have mercy on me? We do not understand what Isaac was looking at when he looked at that substitute for him. Ram died in his place. Our growth group, we're going to be looking. I hope you're a part of a growth group. And sacrifice, these aspects of propitiation and reconciliation and redemption. All of this brings us to one place, worship. Worship with everything, with all of our life. See, this was Christ's proclamation to Israel. You should see me, and you should be glad Abraham did. Abraham did. Why don't you see me and be glad? This is his offering to us this morning. Are we rejoicing in Jesus Christ as our substitute for sin? And listen, as our means for everlasting joy right now because salvation does not begin when you die. It begins the day that the God saves your soul. Because eternal life is not a place. Eternal life is knowing God and God knowing you. Can you rejoice in this? Can you rejoice in this today? Are you? Are you just worrying about the things right in front of your nose and have neglected your own soul? Can we really trust God to provide? Can we trust God to provide our redemption? And listen, not just provide it. What do I mean by that? I mean, can we trust that God's going to apply your redemption? He applies it. He's applying it now if you're in Christ. Where did your redemption begin? Well, the Bible said it begins with your election. God chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. And then He promises us that we will come to glory with Him and we will know as we are known. And He determines everything in the middle. God has saved you, He is saving you, and He will save you. This is our salvation. Trusting Him to provide that for us. Are you rejoicing in it? That no matter what your situation is, God cannot drop whom He has saved. 
God never drops his children. He never puts on them more than they can bear. Is this not what Isaac learned? The ram died so that I might live. And so I have a simple message this morning. Christ died for you so that you might live. So that you might live. He wants to not only be worshipped, he wants to be rejoiced. Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, God didn't die for godly people. He died for ungodly people. He wasn't a substitute for righteous people. He was a substitute for sinners. He did not hang on that tree for sick people. He hung on it for dead people. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. Listen, Jesus didn't die because you hurt his father's feelings. He didn't. He died to save us from God's holy wrath on hell-bound sinners who have committed cosmic treason against his holy name. That's who he died for. And that's you. And that's me. Christ reconciled us to God by the substitute of his own son. And because the substitute was one who lived for us as a substitute, he died for us as a substitute, and he raised again for us as a substitute. Now we can say with bold confidence, as with Isaac and as with Isaiah, now we are righteous in Christ. Now we are alive in Christ. Now we have peace with God. Now we are His friends. And more than that, now He is my sovereign Father. This is what we do. This is what we know. And when our sovereign Father, our conquering King, calls us to go somewhere, we obey because He is the object of our faith not where we're going. Whether, listen, when God calls you to do something, whether it ends up with people clapping or sticks a knife in your back or cuts off your head, it does not matter to us because He is the object of our worship. We're worshiping Him through that, not because it ends well, not because we can count the heads, but because God says it. And we get joy out of just making much of Him. So turn with me to Romans 8. I hope it is your pattern of life to spend a regular time slowly reading God's Word. And if you do, you will probably come on Romans 8 and say it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Romans 8 and verse 31. What I want us to do as we close today I want us to offer this up of our prayer of worship. This is what Paul's doing. 
Romans get through Romans 8 as began no condemnation. All this amazing things is happening, will happen. So he ends up with this. So Romans 8, verse 31. If you have it, I want you to stand with me. I want you to stand with me. I want us to offer this up as our closing prayer of worship to our God. You can either bow your head or you can look at that text. But let's offer it to God from worship to our Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life because we couldn't live one. He died a wrath-absorbing, sin-atoning death because we should have died. And he was raised to life so that death could not have us because we are his. So we say, oh God, what shall we say to these things? If you are for us, who can be against us? You, who did not spare his own son, but you gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is you who justify. Who then can condemn us? Your only son is the one who died. More than that, whom you raised, who is at your right hand, and who indeed right now intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of your Son? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or even a sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed. All the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. O oh, sovereign God, we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from, the, uh, from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. All God's people said, Amen. Let us worship this God who provided such a life for us.